0: Welcome to Her Story, a retelling of the biblical narratives featuring women in scripture with Joanne Guarnieri Hegemeyer, Grace and Peace Joanne. One of the more startling sentences in the whole Bible is the one attributed to Job's wife. Yet a closer study of the ancient Hebrew words that form her short speech reveals how difficult a translator's work really is. What did Job's wife actually say to her husband? How did her words affect Job? And what was God's response? Here's a fresh take in telling the story of the wife of Job. Each story in this series was originally produced as a YouTube presentation, so links to YouTube, to Grace and Peace Joanne blog posts, and the books I've written are provided below. If there was ever a controversial figure in the Bible, it would be Job's wife. Was she a villainous or a heroine? Her story is found in the book of Job, and as its first sentence in his book indicates, there was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. This book centers on a man named Job, who lived in the ancient Near East in what would one day become Northwest Arabia. He and his wife were living a clearly blessed life, and it would have been assumed that this couple was favored by God. Yet when Job and his wife received bitter blows, losing all they had, the tide of public admiration changed to public abasement. But it wasn't until Job was struck with a devastating disease that it became clear he was the target of these cosmic catastrophes. Five trusted people interacted with Job. Four were his friends, and they had much to say about what had happened. In fact, chapters 4 through 37 are Job's friends trying to convince him he must have sinned in some way to deserve God's severe treatment, and Job disagreeing. His friends speak for 31 chapters and Job speaks for six. By contrast, Job's wife has only one verse, but her speech is so startling and so explosive it has left scholars and theologians arguing for thousands of years. So we'll look at her story in four parts. First, the blessings and the bitter blows. Then we'll ask the question, did she blaspheme and berate or did she beseech and embolden? And then we'll end with the rebirth that happens after God and Job interact. So by every measure, Job and his wife were blessed by God. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Job prayed regularly for his children, and as a prophetic note to what was about to occur, the narrator wrote, When the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. We learn much later in the book that Job had once sat in the city gate as an elder and judge and that people sought out his wisdom and admired and honored him. This would not have been possible for Job without a wife who was able to run his household well, who was a good businesswoman and craftsperson, who was respected by their servants and staff, and who, most notably in patriarchal cultures of antiquity, was able to bring forth children. A mother was at the pinnacle of her culture's honor. An esteemed matriarch in her community. In fact, she had successfully born and raised 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. And numbers in ancient Judaism carried significance. Three signified completeness and stability, such as the three patriarchs. Seven was one of the greatest power numbers, representing creation and good fortune, denoting divine completion and holiness and sanctification. And it indicated a very great blessing and 10 was a symbol of good fortune and power. So to have this number of grown children said much about the mother of their household, able to raise up sturdy, beautiful, and beloved offspring, heirs to her husband, and worthy wives to their community's sons. But unbeknownst to them, their righteous and happy lives prompted conflict in the heavenly realms. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, from the heavenly courtroom, where Satan indicted Job as a shallow man who honored God only because of his blessings, and God presented his defense of Job's integrity, to the earthly arena, where Job and his wife would enter into a sudden, shocking ordeal that would ultimately prove their love and loyalty to God. One day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and carried them off, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels, carried them off, killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead i alone have escaped to tell you job bowed his shoulders and accepted it all even when satan frustrated with job's righteous response challenged god again and god permitted job to be inflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head in fact so disfigured no one recognized him and even avoided him in all this Job accepted what had come to him through the Lord's hands. And yet we learn, hidden from Job's eyes, earthly ordeals can have heavenly purposes. And we can learn from Job's response. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and yet blessed be the name of the Lord. Keeping God's character and attributes in view helps us persevere during painful circumstances that are hard to understand. So what was Job's wife's response? Did she blaspheme and berate? I mean, after all, she experienced the very same devastation and loss from a thriving compound of many tents, herds, craftsmen, and herdsmen, 10 grown children presumably with their own tents wealth dignity standing in the community and all of it wiped out in one devastating sweep the greatest disaster came with the loss of her children imagine her standing by 10 fresh graves her whole life as their mother each one cherished and prayed over each one brought forth from her own body nurtured and raised by her and now gone. We almost expect her to say something that would give expression to her anguish. Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Ancient Jewish theologians actually had great sympathy for Job's wife because she had been swept up in a contest that had little to do with her. It was not her faith that had come into question. The Septuagint The Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures gives Job's wife a longer speech, giving her a chance to voice her abject grief and pain. But she still says in the end, Say some word to the Lord and die. But the effect is softened by understanding her suffering and that she is depicted as caring for Job, a great sacrifice to herself. Right around the same time of Jesus, a story was written about Job and his wife called The Testament of Job, and here she worked as a servant so she could earn a little food for her husband and continue to care for him. She remains faithful throughout the story, through to the end, but she still urges Job to speak some word against the Lord and die, adding that then maybe she could be set free from his pain. Augustine, the famous Christian theologian, had absolutely no sympathy at all for the wife of Job. In his estimation, this was simply a replay of Genesis 3. Augustine felt Job's wife had been spared physical ailment because Satan intended to make her his accomplice to bring about Job's downfall. And Augustine claimed that unlike Adam, Job did not listen to his wife and therefore remained righteous. I want you to hold on to that thought. It's a big one. John Chrysostom, Another famous Christian theologian also saw Job's wife as a villainous, and down through the centuries that seems to be the prevailing teaching. She scoffed at her husband's integrity, she urged him to curse God, and she wanted him dead. So when we read Job's response, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. We hear Job decrying his wife as foolish, which in the Hebrew Scriptures always meant purposefully wicked, and rebuking her for not taking his example by accepting all things from God. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? The Apostle Paul would later urge believers to rejoice in the Lord in every circumstance. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. The narrator points out, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, which, at first reading, seems to portray Job as spiritually and morally blameless. But was he? because we have to ask the question, did Job's wife instead beseech and embolden? Because there is an alternative understanding of her speech, and it hinges on the one word translated as curse. In Hebrew, that word is Barak, whose root means to kneel. According to the Hebrew lexicon, this word can mean to either bless or curse to invoke God and asking for a blessing, to praise, celebrate, and adore God, to even bless God. Or to invoke God as a curse. But but here's the thing. Of the 330 times that this word is used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, it means some form of bless or praise 306 times. And it means some form of kneeling or saluting or congratulating 10 times. It only means blaspheme or curse six times, and this passage right here contains one of them. There is another scholarly dispute. Did Job's wife ask a question or make a statement? Several Hebrew commentators believe she stated, You still keep your integrity. In other words, you must still hold on to your integrity. Read this way, Job's wife acts as a provocateur, urging Job to move from passive acceptance to active engagement. Keep your integrity. Invoke God for the blessing God took from you and die on this principle. You are in the right. In another sense, her use of the word Barak may have been intended to convey an intentional double meaning. To sit in passive acceptance Rather than process with the Lord what had happened was in itself a kind of death. It was simply waiting to die rather than engaging with God. One day Jesus would say to the church in Laodicea, You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either cold or hot. Her words exposed the distance between Job and God. Be hot or cold, Job, but don't just sit there. And there is a hint Job lived with distance in his closest relationships. Remember chapter 1, Job would regularly pray for his grown children because it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts? Is it possible Job, in his blessed life, was not close enough with his children to talk about the things of their hearts? Did he think this because he knew them well, or because he didn't really know his children at all? We also need to slow down in reading Job's response to his wife. He does not say she is a foolish woman, or even that her words are foolish words, but rather, he says, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. As women who were not like her, as those other women who are foolish. Did Job think she was overcome by grief and horror? Did he interpret the word Barak as curse rather than bless because of his own horror and grief? Was there already a tug of anger and injury that through no fault of his own God had exchanged heavenly blessing for heavenly cursing in Job's life? And then Job resisted his wife's call to action. He would neither bless nor curse God. He would not invoke God's attention at all. Just as they had passively received God's good to them, they would now passively receive God's bad to them. Then Job demonstrated his decision when his friends arrived. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. As we know, it didn't, it couldn't last. Job entered into lament in chapter 3, and his friends launched into their speeches soon after. They had a theological dilemma. God is untouchably perfect and good, but what was happening was definitely from God, and it was bad. Why was it happening? They were relentless in their arguments. There seemed only one solution. Job must deserve it. And here is where it gets interesting. It seems as though his wife's call to action had been percolating all along in Job's mind and heart. It took 30 chapters, but he got there. Let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. Oh, that I had one to hear me. "'Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. "'Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary!' She said to her husband, "'Keep your integrity.'" In spite of his friend's long discourses, Job kept his integrity. She said, "'Invoke God for the blessing, or cursing, you decide. God took from you.'" Job invoked God for an answer. She said, "'And die on this principle. You are in the right.'" Job asked that he might see the indictment that must have been brought against him by whatever adversary it had been because Job was sure he could successfully defend his case. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. This is what his wife encouraged Job to do, as James would write thousands of years later, Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that brings us to God's response and a rebirth for both Job and his wife. It must have startled and alarmed God when God broke in. Immediately, it seems, right after God spoke, Job lost his nerve and clapped his hands right over his mouth. But God had come for a purpose. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you declare to me. It was time for Job's relationship with God to go to the next level. In a series of questions and answers, God led Job through the wonders of God's mighty acts, the scope of God's responsibility as sovereign over all that is in the physical and spiritual realms. And as God revealed God's creation and wisdom and reign and character and attributes, Job's faith moved from passive to active, from distant to near. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. God turned to the people who had spoken to Job. Remember there were five. Three of them God rebuked. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, God said to those men. You have not spoken of me what is right. Notably, the person who for thousands of years has been vilified the most in Job's story, God did not rebuke. There is actually indication it was by her instigation that Job finally called upon God for the answers he needed to mature his faith and refine his theology. Jewish theologians long held Job's wife remained with him all throughout his ordeal, for it was her ordeal as well. She faithfully tended to his wounds. She faithfully cared for him and kept care of their home even in abject poverty and degradation. All throughout Job kept his integrity towards God and towards others, and all throughout Job's wife stood by him. Now God not only restored their fortunes, God doubled them. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. But of special note is how God restored the fortunes of the matriarch of Job's home. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he named the first Jemima, and the second Keziah, and the third Karenhapuch. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. It's very unusual in a record as ancient as this for women to be named and even more so to be given an inheritance as though they were sons. It makes me wonder if Job had a new appreciation for the strength and value of women and particularly for his wife, who alone gave him the courage to go to God for answers. Mature faith is found in intimacy with God. Job's wife seemed like a villain at first glance, and his friends as sanctified and spiritually astute. But I am asking you to consider her in an entirely different light, because it is Job's friends God rebuked, and Job's wife God not only restored but blessed twice over she was the catalyst that moved Job from distant faith to intimate relationship with God. I have learned to watch God in the scriptures. What does God think about the matter? How does God respond? Often earthly wisdom is at odds with heavenly understanding. Well, it may be said of Job's wife, a capable wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Oh Lord God, we are so thankful to you that your response to Job's wife helps us to understand what a good influence she was in her husband's life and how she prompted him to draw near to you. And so we ask now that you would help us to see through your eyes, the things of your word, that you would help us to draw near to you for heavenly wisdom and that you would enable us to recognize when earthly understanding is getting in our way. Help us to have a better theology that sees you as always good and also that heavenly purposes sometimes show up in earthly ordeals. We pray it to the praise of your grace. Most people have heard of Noah and of his ark about the great flood and the animals two by two and the eight people who were transported from the antediluvian age into a new world. Noah's wife is also mentioned several times. What did the ancients know about her that went without being said? Let's find out in the upcoming podcast, The Wife of Noah.